Well, welcome to the first episode of Double Jeopardy, the Law and Politics podcast for the new year with me, Ken McDonald, And with me, Tim Owen. Uh, we hope you had a good break. We've got a, a very interesting discussion this morning with an old friend of the podcast, uh, Sir Jonathan Jones, Henry King's counsel. Uh, Jonathan has appeared on the podcast um, on a couple of occasions and we thought we'd have him back, invite him back and uh, very pleased that he accepted our invitation to discuss Rwanda. Um, the safety of Rwanda bill, uh, its implications, the law uh, and politics which are at play here. Jonathan really needs no lengthy introduction to our audience. Uh, he's a senior consultant in public and constitutional law at the Magic Circle firm Linklaters. He's also a visiting professor at Durham Law School um, and a master of the bench of the Middle Temple. Of course, he was a government lawyer for over 30 years, uh, finally uh, for six years as the most senior legal official in the UK government as uh, uh, Treasury Solicitor and Permanent Secretary, Head of the Government Legal Department. He regularly writes and speaks on legal and constitutional issues and he was appointed Honorary Queen's now King's Council in 2019 and knighted for public service in 2020. In September 2020, uh, Jonathan resigned from the, his uh, post in government in response to the government's plans to breach the special Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland through the UK Internal Market Bill, which most people felt was in contravention of international law. At the time, a spokesman for the Attorney General, Suella Braverman's uh, office, uh, confirmed the resignation, but refused to comment further. Many other commentators did comment further and most felt that what Jonathan had done had been the honourable uh, and right thing to do in the circumstances. Jonathan, welcome back to Double Jeopardy. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a great, it's very flattering to be invited back yet again. It's like yeah. going on Desert Island Discs multiple times. <laughs> I don't I don't think anyone's been on Desert Island Discs three times, um, but uh, this is, as I said, your, your third visit. Well, we don't need to ask you about, about any of your background. So Let's just get straight to the nitty gritty of this discussion. I think we're going to start, Tim, I think you were going to say something a little bit about the, to, 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 to set the context for the uh, Supreme Court decision, which rather put the mockers uh, for the time being on the government's plans to ship what would necessarily be rather small numbers of people over to Rwanda, because presently the Rwandans apparently only have capacity for two or three hundred. But anyway, do you want to, do you want to just set the scene with the with the very interesting and unanimous uh, Supreme Court ruling before Christmas. Yes, of course. Uh, I, I think it's, it's helpful to, to do that, to set the scene for our discussion, Jonathan, because, of course, the bill, which is going to be back in Parliament next week, as, as Ken has said, is a reaction to that. And, and basically, the Supreme Court dismissed the Secretary of State's appeal, holding that asylum seekers are protected against refoulement, which is effectively forcible return to a country where they face persecution on the basis that Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, as well as the Refugee Convention, established that protection. The Supreme Court said that where an issue of indirect refoulement arose, the test to be applied by the court was whether there were substantial grounds for believing that the removal of an asylum seeker to the receiving country would expose them to a real risk of ill treatment as a consequence of refoulement to a further country. And this, importantly, when we look at what this bill is intended to do, Supreme Court said that when applying that test, the court had to make its own assessment of whether such substantial grounds existed in the light of all the evidence bearing on that issue. 
And again, importantly, that assurances given by the receiving country's government, in this case Rwanda, were not in themselves sufficient to ensure adequate protection against the risk of ill treatment, but rather there was an obligation on the court to examine whether such assurances provided in their practical application a sufficient guarantee that the asylum seeker would be protected against the risk of ill treatment, carrying out a fact-sensitive examination of how the assurances would operate in practice in the circumstances prevailing at the material time, and that while the court would attach weight to the UK government's view as to the value of the receiving country's assurances, it wasn't required to accept that evaluation. Uh, and they went on by reference to the evidence of, uh, particularly from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, about Rwanda's human rights record, about its asylum procedures, about its previous history of going against an agreement with Israel in relation to the receipt of asylum seekers. That on that basis, uh, the Supreme Court held, as a matter of fact, on the evidence before it, that Rwanda was not a safe third country, and so the Rwanda policy was unlawful. So that's what the Supreme Court decided in their unanimous judgment, handed down on November the 15th of last year. And can we just further set the scene by pointing out the obvious, Jonathan, this was the Reed Court, and there's been a lot of comment recently, hasn't there, amongst lawyers who are active in areas which end up in the Supreme Court, that this court is more deferential in some ways to the executive than perhaps the Newberger Court or the Hale Court. Um, and I'm not sure all the lawyers involved in these cases were hugely optimistic uh, about what was likely to happen in the court to this case, but they made these very firm findings of fact, which Tim has just uh, gone through and summarised. Uh, and we're going to come on later to an attempt by the government to deal with these findings of fact. But, but were, were you, before we get into discuss the nitty-gritty, were, were you surprised by this judgment or, or did you did you expect it? I wasn't really surprised. I mean, the case had already had a bumpy ride in the courts below, if you remember. The, the High Court said uh, the scheme was potentially uh, legal, but all the individual decisions had been wrongly taken. So the government was sent away to retake the decisions. Then on appeal to the Court of Appeal, the majority of the Court of Appeal, although excluding the then Lord Chief Justice, said that the whole scheme was unlawful. So it was already obvious that there were serious legal problems with the scheme. And then, as you said, the um, Supreme Court unanimously, under Lord Reed, uh, held that it, the whole scheme was unlawful. I don't think that was really surprising, though. Anybody who thought that Lord Reed was going to be softer on the government uh, was proved wrong by that judgment. Uh, and he was at pains to point out a number of things. First of all, that uh, this wasn't just about the Human Rights Act. This was about a whole set of legal rules in international law and domestic law prohibiting reform on that practice that it was mentioned of uh, the unlawful practice of sending people on to places where they'll be mistreated. So can I just pause there? Because I, I yes. think that's, that's a very significant part of the judgment because of the way in which um, some politicians have tried to weaponize the Human Rights Act in this area and have tried to suggest that this is all about the Human Rights Act and if only we left the European Convention on human rights, none of this would have happened. He was very concerned. Indeed, he, he almost starts with this matter, doesn't he? That this question that is not this is not just about or about the HRA. It's about a whole labyrinth of international treaties and conventions that we're party to. Yes, uh, a whole set of international conventions um, and domestic law. 
giving effect yeah. to those, not just the Human Rights Act. So this is a, a well-established, well-embedded rule of law about how people are treated, how, how their um, human rights are, are treated. And you're right, therefore, that simply repealing the Human Rights Act or even leaving the ECHR uh, would not be a solution to this. So we're going to come on, no doubt, to talk about the solution that the government is proposing in the new bill. Yeah, I mean, that, shall we shall we have a look then and summarise what what's in this bill, the original version of it? Of course, uh, uh, we're going to come on to it in a minute. Uh, amendments are being laid with a view to them being debated next week, um, when the bill returns for two days of debate in the House of Commons. So this is but, the Rwanda. I mean, this is the so this is the Rwanda safety bill, Tim. The, the, yes, the government's if, attempt yes, to deal with that judgment. To give it its full name, it's called the Safety of Rwanda, brackets, Asylum and Immigration Bill. And it's a very short uh, act of uh, or a proposed bill. It's only 12 pages long with only a, a number of a few clauses. Uh, and it begins by saying the purpose of this act is to prevent and deter unlawful migration, and in particular migration by unsafe and illegal routes, by enabling the removal of persons from the Republic of Rwanda uh, under provision made by or under the Immigration Act. And then it refers to the new Rwanda Treaty, which uh, the government of Trump did as having been uh, signed and agreed with Rwanda, which, and it's this document, this new treaty, which is supposed to answer all the criticisms in the Supreme Court judgment. It goes on to make the uh, statement that Parliament of the UK is sovereign and the validity of an act is unaffected by international law. Uh, and it then uh, goes on in section two with this uh, extraordinary uh, provision, uh, se section two, subsection one, every decision maker must conclusively treat the Republic of Rwanda as a safe country. Uh, and so uh, a month after the Supreme Court on the basis of the evidence before it in 2022, Parliament is supposed to declare conclusively that Rwanda is a safe country. So just starting with that, Jonathan, I mean, how unusual uh, is this type of provision? Well, it's extremely unusual. I can't really think of a, of a previous example. I mean, it's not unusual for the government to reverse rulings of the courts on questions of law. So if, for example, court, the Supreme Court finds that uh, comes to a, a, a view that the law means something that the government doesn't expect it to mean, and a surprising judgment, or comes up with a, a ruling that the government now thinks is politically unacceptable, the government is entitled to ask Parliament to pass a law to reverse a judgment of the courts, um, subject oh. to the UK's international law um, obligations, which we, we can come on to again later. But what's unusual about this case is that the bill is being used to change a judgment of fact. Yeah. Um, so as you've said, the Supreme Court, on the basis of evidence, including from the UNHCR, included a matter of fact that Rwanda is not safe. And then along comes the government and introduces a bill which will simply declare that Rwanda is safe, thereby reversing by law a judgment yeah. of fact. And that is very unusual. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I've heard some colleagues in the House of Lords refer to it if I've referred to it myself as um, Orwellian, it's it's stating the, the f a fact 
is other than it is found to be by a court. And be to, be, to be clear, Tim, Tim's read clause two, every decision maker must conclusively treat the Republic of Rwanda as a safe country. It goes on to say a decision maker means the Secretary of State or an immigration officer when making a decision relating to the removal of a person to the Republic of Rwanda under any provision of or made under the Immigration Acts and a court or tribunal when considering a decision of the Secretary of State or an immigration officer mentioned in the earlier paragraph. So a court or tribunal, it says, must not consider a review of or an appeal against a decision of the Secretary of State or an immigration officer relating to the removal of a person to the Republic of Rwanda to the extent that that review or appeal is brought on the grounds that the Republic of Rwanda is not a safe country. So whatever the, the facts are in reality, in the real world, whatever the court thinks in the real world, it has to treat Rwanda as a safe country because Parliament has said so. This seems to me to be taking parliamentary sovereignty into a very strange and and quite worrying place. Yeah, I agree with that. But what it means is if if somebody wants to challenge their removal and they turn up with a load of evidence, whether from the UNHCR again or just evidence of people on the ground in Rwanda as to what's happening there, uh, evidence, eyewitness evidence of people being bundled onto planes and sent off to unsafe places or evidence of corrupt decision making. I'm not saying these things are happening, but supposing that they were evidence of that. The UK courts are being told simply to ignore it. They can't even consider it. And they, they can't find in the face of such evidence that Rwanda is not safe because Parliament has declared for all purposes that it is. And I agree that is extraordinary. And, and it's, it's quite clear that the bill has been drafted in order to uh, be completely bomb-proof, if you like, before the courts when they consider Section 2, Clause 2, which is an extreme ouster clause. Because in, in relation to um, the definition of what is a decision, um, the interpretation section in Section 7 says decision includes a purported decision. That's important. Um, because it's it, based on previous case law, in particular, I think, the Privacy International case, which I think you were still uh, Treasury solicitor when that was litigated through to the Supreme Court. Yes. Um, and in that case, um, the ouster clause, which was in the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, didn't succeed in completely excluding the judicial review of a decision of the uh, investigatory power stripe on the basis it, it didn't include decision as a purported decision. Do you think that's significant? I think it's highly significant. As you said, the intention of the bill is, is to a very large extent, not completely, again, we'll come back to this, but to a very large extent to prevent the courts from getting into any consideration of a decision to send someone to a rounder to exclude yeah. the court jurisdiction almost completely. Well, I think it's, it's completely, it's completely, isn't it? Well, save only for the, for the, very, for the very narrow provision under Clause uh, 4, uh, which allows uh, decisions to be challenged on a very narrow basis relating yeah. to an individual's particular circumstances and therefore the risk that they will be uh, subject to um, mistreatment in Rwanda itself. So there's that very narrow opportunity for challenge under Clause 4. And we know that that is there partly to satisfy those in government who actually do have concerns about interfering with individual rights and the rule of law. Uh, and then we can come on to talk about how far that provision goes and the fact that 
there are some in the Tory party that think even that goes too far uh, and even that opportunity for challenge should be closed off. Yeah, I mean, in fact, what I meant is it's a complete ouster clause on the question of whether Rwanda is in general a safe country. That oh, is yes. Sorry, I agree. I agree with that. And then the question is whether, in any individual case, there should be an opportunity for challenge. Um, and as we've said, um, clause four to a to a very limited extent allows for challenge based on the individual's particular circumstances. But yes, you're right on the basic question of whether Rwanda is safe. The courts are being told, you must not go there. Parliament has decided for all purposes. I mean, this this question of ouster is very interesting, isn't it? It's been controversial um, in the past, and the way the courts respond to this is going to be fascinating. I think it was in the Privacy International case when a couple of the... Was it that case when, in which a couple of the Supreme Court judges floated the possibility in extremists of declining to follow a statute if its provisions were so undermining of the rule of law that it would be undermining of the rule of law in itself to, to follow that statute. I mean, yeah. that was a minority opinion, but uh, it, it sent many legal, conservative legal commentators, including Professor Richard Eakins, who's been on the po podcast, into something of a frenzy, suggesting that this was a potential massive legal overreach. I mean, do you think something of that sort, is it conceivable something of that sort would happen here? The courts would simply say, this is a step too far and we're not having it, or, or are they likely to find a, a way to live with it? You're, you're right, there have been those statements before um, about the possible limits, essentially the limits of parliamentary sovereignty. In other words, there are occasions when the courts might decline to give effect to an act of parliament because it's so offensive to the rule of law or some other principle. It's never happened uh, because one way or another, either side has backed down. You never quite come to the crunch. Uh, and my guess is that we won't come to the crunch in this bill either. But it, it is possible to conceive of that happening. So my guess is that the courts will give it, will at least nominally give effect to clause two and will say, okay, we're prepared to accept that Rwanda is safe. And then the interesting action will be on individual challenges under clause four and how far the court is prepared to accept challenges based nominally on, on an individual's uh, own personal circumstances, but in fact, opening the door more widely to arguments that, well, for me, Rwanda isn't safe, and therefore um, challenges are entertained on that basis. Where I think things could get really messy is if, over time, evidence starts to emerge, real-life evidence, that Rwanda still isn't safe. Yeah. Go back to my example, where you've got individuals saying, and, and film evidence, or whatever it might be, of things going badly wrong in Rwanda. And that is presented to the courts in the UK. What is the court to do with it? As clause two stands, the court is to ignore it. But do you reach a point where the courts say, Parliament really cannot have intended Parliament's enacted something that looks like a, a binding provision, but we're entitled to treat it as a kind of presumption. And Parliament can't have intended that that rule applies even in the face of incontrovertible contrary evidence. Um, and in other words, it, re it, it reads into the statute some kind of get it. Um, now, I think that would be hugely problematic. You've basically got a kind of constitutional clash where the courts are declining to give effect to what on their face are the clear words. But on the other hand, are straining those words to give effect to circumstances in the real world. Now, we're not at that point yet, partly because, of course, the new treaty and so on are only to come into force. So 
you know, who knows? Interestingly, in that situation, par- Parliament itself would look remarkably foolish because it would have legislated for a fact which turns out to be obviously an untrue fact. Well, what would you would hope is that if that turns out to be true, the government would simply pause all removals and um, the court wouldn't have to step in. And as you say, uh, you might hope that the government would um, repeal the statute if it turned out that notwithstanding this treaty, Rwanda was patiently an unsafe place. But all of that is speculation. But you, you can see there being a problem. But all sides, including presumably the authorities in Rwanda, will be anxious to avoid that. And therefore, the, you know, the likelihood is, one hopes, Rwanda will clean up its act. It will be seen to give effect to this treaty. Um, uh, the courts won't want to go behind Clause 2. And therefore, it is possible, as I say, nonetheless, that there will be individual claims. And the question will be how those individual claims will be uh, will be dealt with in the courts. I mean, I, it's obvious there will inevitably be challenges if this act, if this bill ever gets on the statute book. There will be challenges. And it seems to me that the bill with this extreme ouster clause does squarely raise what was the second issue that was unresolved in Privacy International, um, which was judgment given, I think, in 2019. Namely, uh, the issue, what is the reaction of the courts if Parliament were to pass legislation purporting to abrogate or derogate from the accepted principle that judicial review is a crucial requirement of the rule of law. And what was pointed out in the judgment of Lord Carnworth in Privacy International is that an ouster clause, an extreme ouster clause, in fact, virtually the same as this one uh, in Clause 2, was suggested way back in 2003 in relation to the Asylum and Immigration Treatment of Claimants Bill. And after criticism by the Constitutional Affairs Committee um, of the uh, House uh, or the the Joint Committee, uh, who who said that an ouster clause as extensive as the one suggested in the bill is without precedent, as a matter of constitutional principle, some form of higher judicial oversight of lower tribunals and executive decisions should be retained. And in the face of that criticism, that ouster clause was withdrawn. And what this bill, the Rwanda bill does, is put it back in. And Parliament is now being asked to to enact this. And it will lead, I think, inevitably to the issue being litigated again of whether the courts would comply, would go along with such an ouster clause. Because the argument that was advanced in in Privacy International, that such an extreme clause would be in conflict with the rule of law, which is as fundamental a principle as parliamentary sovereignty. And it's interesting that in Privacy International, Sir James Eady, uh, Queen's Counsel, as he then was. I think you you briefed him in that case, Jonathan. Yes, indeed. Yeah, of course, I was the Treasury Minister at the time. But James's uh, argument... He, he said that he the government didn't question the need for an independent authoritative interpreter of legislation <clears throat> as a fundamental requirement of the rule of law. So that was the government's position there. Um, but in defending this ouster clause, if Parliament enacts it, they'll be saying, well, that isn't necessary and Parliament is is sovereign and Parliament can do whatever it likes. I mean, this may be strong meat for some of us, Jonathan, but it's not strong enough for others. And I think um, you, you mentioned just 
before you we started to record this podcast that you've seen some amendments proposed by um, some members of the Conservative Party that want to make this bill uh, even stronger than it is at the moment because they don't think it's tough enough. Could could you just um, summarise what those amendments are suggesting? Yes, well, it was was always clear that there were some on the far right of the Conservative Party, including Suella Braverman, who, of course, had been Home Secretary and previously Attorney General, been very vocal about the need to be even tougher uh, in um, giving effect to the Rwanda scheme. And Robert Jenrick, who is the immigration minister who resigned because he thought the bill wasn't tough enough. And they and others have come forward with a bunch of amendments, which will indeed take the bill in an even more extreme direction by further excluding all reliance on international law, including the European Convention and um, the Human Rights Act, uh, and tightening up clause four. I talked about clause four having this very narrow basis for challenge based on individual circumstances. And in particular, a very strict limitation on the extent to which a court can um, grant an interim remedy, that's to say, blocker removal temporarily. Uh, and the bill says that can only happen if the tribunal is satisfied that the person uh, uh, would face a real imminent and foreseeable risk of serious and irreversible harm. Um, so again, there's that very narrow basis on which somebody can go to court and say, you've got to block my removal because I, given my personal circumstances, face that really extreme harm. So it's already a very tight test, but it's too tight um, for it. So it's not tight enough for these um, on the right of the Tory party. And they have tabled amendments that say, no, uh, you can't block uh, any removal uh, except on the basis of a decision in bad faith related to somebody's uh, ability to travel. So it's a fabulously narrow um, test. And they explicitly say uh, the court can't intervene because they think a decision is unreasonable. They can't intervene because they think a decision is outside the powers of the decision maker or because it interferes with anybody's individual human rights or because it breaches international law. So um, in those ways, the amendments would uh, almost a vanishing point, restrict any access to a court, even um, in the very urgent case where somebody's about to be sent in circumstances where they would face harm. So um, those amendments have been tabled. They've got quite a few supporters already. Um, uh, my guess is, I mean, they will split the Tory party because there are others on the uh, on elsewhere in the party who think this bill goes already just about as far as it, it can. Yeah. Um, and is already um, pretty unpalatable from a rule of law point of view. Um, so it's very difficult to imagine these amendments passing in the Commons. But nonetheless, they are down. There are those who would um, tighten this bill even further and basically restrict any right of access to a court and any opportunity for reliance on on international law. Yeah, I don't think these <clears throat> these amendments will pass in the Commons, and they certainly wouldn't get through the Lords. I think this is about post-election positioning and what sort of Conservative Party we're going to have after the election if, as is widely expected, it's defeated. I mean, Robert Jenrick's a very interesting case in point. He was put into the Home Office as Immigration Minister by Rishi Sunak to keep an eye on Suella Braverman and to try and control her wilder impulses. And uh, he's obviously seen which way the wind is blowing. And he's now, um, uh, I, I would say, as wild as she is on some of these issues. But as I say, I think this is about some posturing for the 
post-election period as much as anything else. I mean, the politics of this are quite interesting. R Rishi Sunak has really tied himself to this policy. This is one of the stop the boats is one of the policies that he's proclaimed he should be judged by. He's often was often to be seen speaking on a podium on which the words stop the boats were inscribed in, in blue and white. This is quite a brave um, stance, isn't it? Because it's a very uncertain policy. It's very uncertain it's going to have the sort of impact that he wants on the boats. And it, it rather smacks to me of, of pre-election desperation uh, as much as of a, a, a careful and wise political calculation. I mean, if he doesn't reduce the number of crossings substantially, if this policy collapses or is mired in the courts, uh, that's politically not a great place for him to be, I would have thought. Well, he, I mean, we were told that he had doubts about the Rwanda policy previously, but you can see why, because it is turning out to be a political nightmare for him, even within his own party, um, getting consensus around what the um, response should be. And as you said, I think, Ken, the this is not going to stop the boat. I mean, the number of people that are likely to be sent to Rwanda, even if this bill passes in roughly its current form, you know, is not is going to be a drop in the ocean. Well, that's the thing. Okay. It looks entirely performative. In the moment, these Rwandans have two or three hundred places available. I mean, even if they get up to two or three thousand, we've got tens of thousands of, of a backlog here and tens of thousands of people coming. The government seem to think that if people think there's a chance they'll be sent to Rwanda, they won't come. But if I was someone desperate to get to the United Kingdom, I'd quite like the look of those odds because the odds of being sent to Rwanda on any analysis are going to be pretty slender. And so as a deterrent, it looks a bit weak. Well, they're very they're very slender um, numerically, and also you're, you're being um, assured that actually Rwanda isn't such a bad place after all. You'll be perfectly well treated when you get there. The Switzerland of Africa, we're told. Yeah, exactly. So the risk doesn't feel that high. The political risks are undoubtedly very high. So there's every possibility this bill will not pass, uh, not least because um, the Lords may tear it apart. You'll know more, more about that, Ken. Um, but even if it does, there are bound to be further legal challenges, as we have said, either under Clause 3 as it stands or head-on legal challenges to the enforceability of the whole Act on, on the kind of rule of law basis we've been talking about. Um, so the thing goes back to the courts. Who knows how quickly they can be dealt with? Um, obviously, the intention of the, of the government is that uh, such challenges won't actually hold up uh, people being sent, but that remains to be seen. So it turns into... A battle with the courts and with the law and with the ECHR and you you may be right that's a choice as to um, political positioning in advance of the election but if nobody has been sent if the whole thing is still mired in controversy by the time of the election then the government the Conservative Party can say well we tried uh, and it was these pesky lawyers and courts and international mm -hmm. law which got in the way um, that may be uh, how Sunak is positioning himself. I mean, in, on the on the internal Conservative Party politics of, of it, I have to say I'm I, I'm slightly surprised and a bit disappointed that Alex Chalk and Victoria Prentice, who's the Attorney General, are willing to support the current bill. Uh, which seems to me to be uh, inevitably, well, it is incompatible with uh, the Human Rights Act. James Cleverly hasn't even 
uh, purported to make the declaration. He, he's not able to do that, in that as a result of the advice he's received. But of course, if, if these uh, amendments that are being tabled, as you've described them, were to pass, it seems to me inevitable that he would lose Alex Chalk and Victoria Prentice. I can't see, but they're both one nation Tories who I can't believe would stay in a government that put this on the statute book, uh, amended even further. It's also the case, um, again, as the former head of the government legal department, you you probably read about the fact that James Eady's advice was leaked to the Times. Um, it was advice I think he gave last summer, so before this bill was in place, but anticipating uh, the kind of policy, that the, the Rwanda policy. Can you just tell us, based on your experience, I mean, how how, how does it work in terms of the advice that government lawyers give? And what's your view about the circumstances in which this advice has been leaked? Well, um, such a leak is very unusual. Um, yeah. I've, so I have no idea how that happens. Um, and it's not a good thing, whatever you think of the substance. It doesn't help anybody if legal advice is being, is being leaked. Um, uh, but no doubt it's a sign of discontent felt somewhere within government or within the civil service about what's going on. Uh, and that's not surprising. Um, but, but leaks are a bad thing, uh, and they are very unusual when it comes to legal advice, for good reason. That's normally kept confidential. Um, there's no doubt that um, all the risks uh, that we're describing will have been crawled over by government lawyers and by James E.D. No surprise at all that he has been advising on this. Um, uh, and, and similarly, as you said, the Attorney General uh, whose advice is always kept confidential. Nonetheless, it's obvious that she will have considered this. However, reluctantly, she would have blessed this bill. Um, and I have no doubt that the government has been advised of all the risks we've been talking about. That's to say the risk with the certainty of individual challenges, risks about how the court will the courts will interpret mm. clause four, but also the risk that um, you know, there may be head-on challenges to the uh, declaration that Rwanda is safe, particularly if evidence emerges that it isn't. Uh, and it may very well be the government has, has satisfied that, you know, it can it can take those challenges on, uh, but that this is as far as they can go. And you said you talked about Alex Chalk's position and Victoria Prentice's position. I mean, they've obviously concluded, because they're still in post, that this is just about the right side of the line. Um, I suspect it's been a tough call for them. Uh, and as you say, if the amendments that have been tabled were to pass, which I think they won't, but if they were, I can't see how uh, Alex Chalk and Victoria Prentice could remain in post because that would undoubtedly take this bill over the line, yeah. I just thought, from a rule of law point of view. Well, of course, you resigned over precisely the same issue, albeit in the context of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a, a willingness to breach international law. Well, that was a willingness to breach, yeah, um, explicitly to breach international law. And obviously, um, Brandon Lewis, the minister at the time, admitted that. Um, and it so happened that was international. The government had only very recently agreed as part of the Brexit deal. Um, here there is a willingness to uh, ignore all international law that gets in the way of these removals. As we started by saying, that's not just the European Convention. It's the relevant UN conventions as well. But in particular, the UN, the ECHR, and if necessary, interim measures granted by the European Court of Human yeah. Rights. All of that, the government is 
said in this bill it is prepared to ignore um, if it gets in the way of removal to Rwanda. That is a pretty extraordinary state of affairs. And it's obviously why, as you said, the Home Secretary hasn't been able to certify that the bill is compatible with the Human Rights Act, uh, because for all those reasons, it won't be. Yeah, this situation is obviously even worse than the one that led you to resign, uh, Jonathan. I mean, I, I must say to me, this all has a, a bit of an end times feeling to it. I think we're in the, it looks like we're in the dog days of this government. And this seems, this seems, it seems to smack of a purely performative policy that's designed to keep uh, the party together as much as anything else, and it's signally failing in that. It's worth reminding ourselves that the Home Secretary, whose bill this is, um, before he took up that role, was widely reported to have described this policy as, and I quote, batshit, a, a claim he's never denied. And it, it, it may be that's a judgment with which we can all um, concur. But uh, Jonathan, I won't, I, won't, I won't ask you whether you do, but Jonathan, thank you very much for uh, joining us again. As ever, it's been um, illuminating and, and and a lot of fun as well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, that, that was great. And, and perhaps we'll get you back for a fourth time uh, later on when all this bill has worked its way through. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the Law and Politics podcast with Ken McDonald and with me, Tim Owen. If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, give us a review, hopefully a good one. It helps other people to find us and have a look at the back catalogue, which contains a number of extremely interesting guests discussing all the big issues in law and politics. Our editor is Billy Lawrence, our social media advisor, is Jess Jones, and we'll see you soon. We've been using Zoom this week because we had technical difficulties with our normal software, but we hope to be back to full sound quality um, by the next uh, episode. Mm -hmm.